Hi, Sarah Heppel. It's your favorite air traffic controller. <laughs> Hi, Nancy Rommelman. Uh, can you tell me about the planes right now and which ones yes. are coming in? And Actually, we had some really actually crazy um, um, thunderstorms and lightning last night. Uh, for the first, for the second time in two weeks, I woke up because a a beam of lightning was piercing my sleeping eyelid. Um, but yeah, I, it was a tough night for me directing that traffic, you know. Having to get them around the weather here in Tulsa, as you know, we're kind of famous for um, uh, uh, twisters and stuff out here. But you know what? I stayed on the job, and uh, now I'm here with you uh, just a little later than usual. We should explain that I <laughs> said when I saw you this morning over the in, um, Zencaster, this yeah. web service, uh, you have a headset on <laughs> with one of those like Britney Spears uh, little mini microphones <laughs> that I associate, yeah, both with uh, performers performing for like large audiences and uh, anybody like doing bell hell, like um, working for AT and T. Yes, at, like yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah, I do. I also kind of look like a telephone operator. We should, we should. Hello, hello. Hey, what's the name of this podcast? Smoke them if you got them. Yeah, and we are coming from you. Well, I'm on the road right now. I'm coming to you from uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, then the next time I think I'll be in Houston or something, or oh no, Austin, maybe when we speak. And you've just gotten back from where, Sarah Hepla? Well, I was in I was in Joshua Tree, uh, the the state park. Is it state or national park? Um, in Southern California, so it was pretty rad. I was out there a couple of months ago with uh, Liz Wolf, who some of you might know from um, Reason uh, Magazine and the uh, and from Twitter. And um, she and I kind of, you know, dumped the truck and then went walking for a while, talking, talking, and then could, couldn't find couldn't find the truck. We're like wandering out in the desert for like an hour and a half, uh, but we uh, we we got there. We finally found our way it, back. It's very hard to contemplate if you haven't spent time in the desert, just the absolute nothingness of it. And I would recommend that anybody go out to the desert because I feel like it really does for me. It really places things in perspective. Um, you know, it has a way of smalling to use that as a verb. Oh, I love um, that. The the things that occupy so much space in my mind and I get more of a sense of myself is like one small little speck of dust in a larger collective. Um, it connects me to nature. It always feels very healing. You know, back when I was a lousy drunk, I always, but a loving one, um, <laughs> I always loved being in the desert because it would feel like drying out. You know, like I didn't want to drink when I was in the desert. Um, now I'm almost 12 years sober. And so I don't have that. Uh, I don't have that feeling anymore, but it's just sort of like, ah, oh, this feels really good. Like the noise, um, things just sort of like the volume on my anxiety and the whole sort of frantic scroll of life slows down. I really couldn't get Wi-Fi out there. That's so. a good thing. When we were out there, we were staying at a place, you know, sort of kind of a typical, you're just a lot of land, a lot of air. Uh, I had I was staying in a little tiny, it was just literally like a bed in this little kind of tin shack with a little outhouse, <laughs> but it was like a nice outhouse. Um, but yeah, you, you absolutely feel small. You, you step out of your room and you're standing there and the, the winds, I mean, they're, they're, 
pretty consistent and pretty fierce and they're and they make noise and you do you just feel very small and it's a and it's a mm-hmm. good feeling it's like oh yeah okay so yeah i am just this little thing it's fine it's fine small so, but connected yeah. because i think yeah. we we associate smallness with sort of being not important but it's like not important in a good way mm-hmm. it's like what we call in the program uh right sizing you know so that you you know you're not you're not the biggest piece of shit in the world and you're not some grandiose important person. You're just like, you're one more, you're one more person in the collective that is this strange social experiment called life. Didn't we all learn or shouldn't we've all learned it as teenagers? You know, uh, it's like, you know, you're at that, at that party when you're in high school and someone's like, Oh, everybody's just looking at me and thinking about me. It's like, actually they're not. (laughs) They're just really thinking about themselves. You You really are not the biggest person here. (laughs) That's one of the great lessons of, I think most, you know, therapy will teach you that. And certainly AA um, will remind you of it. Uh, The one wrench into that system, into that, into that idea I want to, I want to throw is that, it's really upended by social media because the truth is a lot of times people really are thinking about you and they'll share shit with you on your timeline. And you're like, wait a minute, wait, why were you even thinking about this? Right. I and mean, we're going to talk about a lot of that stuff, but I, I think that's really also an extension of the people just trying to make themselves self-important. You know, if someone's going to oh, come totally. at you and scream at you about your, the terrible thing or the, maybe the thing you didn't even do, it's really because now they have their moment to be, to have the light shined on them, right? Because if people really, really, I think, if when people really have a serious bone to pick, like they really, really feel like they have a stand here and something super important, they would go about it in a way that was um, concrete and interesting and adult. You say, like, I have a real problem with you, and we're going to like address this like adults. But that's not that's not what we see happening <laughs> online. It's like it's like how do I do this like quickly for my self satisfied little moment of swing? I mean, anyway, we're going to get into that because yeah, I, it's a lot of status yeah. seeking and it's a lot of brand building. You know, one thing that my mom, who's a therapist, taught me many years ago was that when people are talking, they're often and usually talking about themselves. And so whenever I read online comments that are negative about me, I usually switch the pronoun. So if it says like, you're a racist and you're a loser and you don't have any friends, I sort of switch it to like, I. Um, well, I wrote this, I wrote the, down this. That person is usually telling me about themselves. Of course. You accuse people of what you're actually doing yourself. It's like the the super jealous spouse that's accusing his spouse of being unfaithful because he's being unfaithful. But I wrote this down when we were making some notes because I was reading articles yesterday trying to not get my head to explode off of my body. And I wrote down the note in my own words, people who lie endorse lies. Right? Say it again. Say it again. Say it again. people, People who lie endorse lies. So if you feel that it's okay to come out and say, um, you know, this person did this terrible thing, when you don't have any evidence and you know maybe that they didn't do it, when other people are kind of gathering steam about their own camera, it's like, yeah, I'll endorse that shit. Hell yeah. Why not? That's easy. Like, 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 like. So yeah. Mm. I mean, we, do you endorse people's lies, Sarah Hubbla? Is that what you do? I don't know. Maybe. 
don't think I don't think so. But I, you threw me for a loop. Good I'm girl, still, I'm still. I I need to be very honest and say like I don't know. Do I? Um, it had that phrase had a sort of you are what you eat. Um. What is sense that? about it uh like like philosophically and then it also reminded me of the the there's a therapy and saying that's like broken people break other people did you hurt say, people you, hurt people that's what it you, is did you just say therapian there's a therapian saying god i love this you you were just creating were you you're smalling you're you're therapying um neologisms so, neologisms with sarah hepla uh that's right um well we we kind of went bananas yesterday with our stories. And of course, they're all tying together because there are the stories of our time and there are the stories that drive us crazy. How, how did we start in this? Did we start in this with the uh, Duke lacrosse piece? Did you send me that? How did that happen? Well, Wes Yang, um, who I subscribe to his Substack and I often listen to his podcast, he had a guest post by someone named Jeff Schellenberg. Schellenberg or Schellenberger? Schellenberger. I Shout believe Schellenberger. Um, about the, the Duke lacrosse case, which was a case that I had been meaning to revisit for some time because it sort of lived in my consciousness, but I had never really dug into it very much. And I did that a lot this morning. Um, but that's where I think it crossed both our radars. And I think you forwarded it to me oh, saying, because you know, why don't we talk about this? We'd also, um, he had had, was he the same guest that Wes Yang had on the podcast actually talking about this? And then this is an extension because I think I was listening. Go ahead. So I think you're remembering a guest that came on to talk about Title IX, which I forwarded to you yes, like okay, weeks you're ago. And it's a fascinating yep. conversation yep. with somebody different um, about how Title IX became, you know, went from being something that was about sports to something that was about sexual assault. Right. Um, and that was really fascinating. You know, one of, I think, Wes Yang's specialties and the people that he attracts to his project, both as listeners and then also contributors, are really from academia. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Oh, okay. Hold on a second. It's okay, baby. Give me a kiss. Okay. Bye. She's got to go to work. That was a special guest starring appearance by my daughter, Tava Sampson. I am here visiting her. She's these, one of the set decorators on uh, the show Reservation Dogs that films here outside of Tulsa. So I'm staying with her and she's heading off to work. So Sarah Heppola got to see her lovely face. Hi, but, bye. I'll but she can't, she can't. She can't hear she you. She can't because, hear me because I've got the the, the air co traffic controller headset on. Um, but, uh, that was yeah. so funny because I was doing this thing that I do sometimes, which is where I close my eyes so that I can concentrate. I know we were watching you with your eyes. Yeah. Closed. So <laughs> how creepy! I'm sitting there talking like with my eyes closed, and then I opened them, and there was this beautiful young woman standing next to you, and I was like, "What the fuck just happened?" <laughs> In any case, I kind of think this is interesting. I mean, I, I also follow Wes Yang. I don't listen to him as closely as you do, but I always enjoy what he's talking about or having people write about. But isn't it interesting that they that he did this podcast, they're talking about Title IX, and then like a week and a half later, two weeks later, kind of follow it up with something that really is in the same vein. And in many ways, um, um, Schellenberger made the, the, uh, the um, 
the, the, the contention that the culture wars we believe we've been fighting since 2015, 2016, actually were being codified and concretized back in, what was it, 2006, I think? Is yeah, it's 2006. It and the line here is that the Duke lacrosse affair was a dry run for practically all the culture war skirmishes that followed. I have to say the the overlaps with the language um, that we heard, let's say, in the Donald McNeil case or, or basically any other case of this kind, it's always um, regardless of the truth. That's a quote. That's a quote from some of the professors that were gunning for these uh, three lacrosse players who were said to have raped a an African-American uh, stripper at their fraternity. Am I getting that right? At yes. a fraternity function? Uh, all of which turned out None of which turned out to be true. Um, they didn't care. Um, the, 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 the group of 88, I believe it was called, um, uh, professors, including, I think, the president of Duke, uh, signed this letter. They did not want due process for these boys. They, did, they, they were, at the time, um, they were, the police also were, wow, there's a, there's a thunderstorm here. I don't know if you can hear that um, no. through the mic. Um, yeah, it's, um, they, but- Another quote from that was, regardless of results of the police engagement, police investigation, what is apparent is that every day, dot, 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 systemic racism, these boys, boys like them, didn't matter if these boys did anything, they were going to stand in for the bad behavior of, I guess, white dudes in America from time and Privileged white athletes, I think. Privileged, Right. They were going to stand in to the point where one of these professors, this is, these are boys, first of all, let's remember they didn't do anything. Let's remember they were being accused publicly by the Duke administration. This was going out into the world. One of the signatories of the, of the, the letter or the group of 88 contacted one of the boys' parents and called their son a farm animal. Okay. This is what was considered the correct way, regardless of what happened. I'm, I'm obviously I'm speechless. I didn't, I didn't follow up. I mean, how can this be the way grownups are going to, and these are also, sorry, these are grownups that have pledged or ostensible grownups who have pledged to teach young people. One of the things that the Schellenberger piece uh, illuminated for me was the way that radical politics had taken hold at Duke University, uh, sort of running in parallel with the university's drive to create NCAA winning teams so that these two tracks are, you know, I did not understand that in the 80s, Duke University was known for was started the humanities department in particular was starting to become known for its very high profile uh, faculty, which in, included a lot of queer theorists, Marxist theorists, and sort of anti-colonialists. Uh, um, have you ever visited Duke University, by the way? No. I have not. Okay, I did. Um, I visited Duke University. Um, I had like, because I went to, um, I'm like a middle class kid that grew up around rich people. And so one of my friends, um, she brought me with her 
uh, to like one of my early adaptations is that I'm just a very likable person so that rich people will take me along with them on their trips and their dinners. And this has served me um, uh, throughout my career. And um, so anyway, this friend took me to, oh, by the way, there's a leaf blower in my background. Can you hear it? Nope. Okay, cool. Um, leaf blowers and thunderstorms. That's the name of the uh, episode. So she took me on a tour of college campuses. We went to University of North Carolina, which I absolutely fell in love with. Um, William and Mary, which is where she eventually ended up going. Or no, I'm sorry, Washington and Lee. Washington and Lee, man. That's like wow. the name of a university. But anyway, <laughs> uh, but we also went to uh, Duke University. And Duke University, of all the places we went, made the strongest impression on me because I remember thinking that it looked like a fairy kingdom. I remember thinking that it looked as though gnomes were going to be wandering. And the the girls, what I remember about it is that the girls were wearing wrap skirts. I don't know if you remember these. They were like yeah, long like in the to 80s. your ankles. In the eight, this is like, so this is 91. So we're huh. still in like 80s trend, especially in the South. And so they were wearing wrap skirts. And I was like, wow, this is college. Like I, I was really hoping to go to someplace a little bit more bohemian. I eventually went to the University of Texas in Austin, which was that indeed. Um, but that, I, I was really under the impression that Duke was kind of like a hoity-toity university. It's super expensive. It sort of fashions itself as the Harvard of the South. But, um, but you know, I had no idea that the these radical politics had taken hold. And and Schellenberger does a good job of explaining sort of why this happened. The university was trying to to um, you know increase its prestige, and this was easier to do through the humanities than doing through the sciences and some of the other departments. Well, the, so, the finances of that were kind of interesting too, because if you hired someone within the sciences. You had to pay them X because they also needed the labs and all this stuff. And he put a, I think he put a price tag at like $400,000 to hire one of people yeah. in the sciences. Where if you were hiring these other people that were a little more radical or kind of bringing, you know, new uh, kind of ideas, they, it was a lot. You could probably get like three for one, something like that. Yeah, exactly. And so the, the department becomes known for its radical chic, while the college itself is more largely known for... Uh, basketball yeah. and apparently lacrosse is it catholic and is duke a catholic school i think so okay i, I don't, know. don't know okay um and then uh, it has a very robust fraternity and sorority yeah. system yeah. and so this takes place on a fraternity like a lot of these cases do uh i was just looking up the movie old school i wanted to know when it came out because one of the interesting things about old school which comes out in 2003 is that it's really one of the most popular movies at the time and it kind of plays on and celebrates and pokes fun at fraternity culture um in a way that i think like was crowd pleasing to everyone it managed to win both sides like frat boys love it but people who hate frat boys love it and i think there's something interesting this takes place in 2006 where the you know i think the cultural tide is starting to turn against fraternities um and even though they are still in many ways the center of like campus culture, there is an increasing amount of resentment toward them about the entitlement 
and the raucous partying and the um, allegations of sexual assault that begin to bubble up around that um, those social enclaves. I, I, you were about to say something, and I, I don't want to keep talking, but I do. Before we get more into this, I spent some time looking at this actual case because um, there was stuff about the actual incident itself that I didn't know. Tell me. Tell me. Well, I just it had been many years since I'd learned about the Duke Lacrosse case, which I learned about in a sixty minutes story that that largely exonerated the the kids in the public imagination. Um, but you know, when it all starts in 2006, so just to refresh people's memories or to tell them if they've never heard it, basically the Duke lacrosse team decides to have, to hire strippers, um, for a party that's going to happen at their, I think off campus fraternity house. They asked for two white strippers. Um, that is not, Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. There's a racial component here. That's actually pretty, that's pretty ugly. Um, they asked for two white strippers, uh, the strippers that showed up, one was black and one was biracial. Um, it's kind of a shit show from the moment they, the strippers get there. I think the boys were too drunk. Um, they had been asked to pay for the strippers, um, before they got there and they didn't like that. You know, they were, they were asking sort of to pay for their own entertainment in a way that didn't go over well on them and the um one of the one of the strippers her name is crystal magnum she has been oh i'm sorry mangum uh she has been identified since this incident for variety of reasons we'll get into later um she shows up not only drunk but also on at least a muscle relaxant if not various other drugs that were later found in her system now, I do remember there were two strippers and one got had to kind of leave pretty quickly because she was so kind of wrecked. Is that correct? So Crystal is the one that's really wrecked. And, you know, things are starting to go bad. But one of the things that happens um, is that one of the players asks if the, tripper, if the stripper has any sex toys. This is the one <gasps> that's more coherent. Ugh. And she responds by asking if the if the guy's penis is too small. And the guy then brandishes this broomstick and says, why don't you use this as a sex toy? Oh, Jesus Christ. And so this prompts the women to stop the performance and shut themselves in the bathroom. And this is around the time that some of the other lacrosse players leave the house. There's some issues around them not having enough money to pay them. The guys go to the ATM and later it's these ATM stamps that will exonerate them. Um, the women come out and then Crystal, again, this, she's, she's, she's a little disoriented. She also has bipolar disorder. Um, she roams around the yard. She's half dressed and shouting. I mean, this has just gone very bad and they get coaxed back in with an apology. Um, but, uh, you know, later they're separated for about five minutes. And this is the point at which Crystal is going to say that she was dragged into a bathroom and raped by 20 men, which she will then (gasps) later downshift to three. Um, so one of the last things uh before we leave this is that you know the 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 women end up driving away together they they drove separately but they drive away together in this 
in the the, oh, the, the okay. one stripper who's coherent. It's her car. And so Crystal gets in the car with her. And one of the, the again, one of the lacrosse guys yells, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the stripper. The stripper yells, you know, you guys are short dick white boys. I mean, she's pissed, right? This is this is a this is a it wasted sounds, evening for him. It it's, sounds. It's gr- I mean, it sounds. It's gross. gross. Okay, it's gross. It's it's gross. It's really. But I mean, it it's also gross. the whole like the whole origin of it is gross. It's like okay, yeah. so if fraternities could invite two strippers over, they care what they look like. They're not the same girls. Everybody's getting mouthy and horrible. He suggests she uses a fucking broom. This is disgusting. It's disgusting. And so there's one more thing here. So um, she she kind of makes a crack about how this kid couldn't get it on, get it on his own and he had to pay for it. And then one player yells back, we asked for whites, not N-words. Oh, so everybody's behaving like I mean, it's awful. It's awful, it's, actually. It's, it's awful. And so then, actually, the the coherent stripper calls 911, and she reports this. And the police And what does she report? She reports the, the yelling, or does she report- That a white guy yelled N-word at okay. her. But and, does not report that they've been, there's been a Well, rape. no, because nothing like that has happened. Okay. Um, and then what happens is that this, this coherent stripper and the- um, and Crystal get into a fight because Crystal's kind of like not in her mind. So they yeah. start arguing because Crystal won't get out of the car. And so she tries to push her out. And then she drives to a Kroger and she tells a, a female security guard that like this woman won't get out of her car. And so the guard goes in and like extracts Crystal from this car and says that she didn't really smell like alcohol, but she looked like she was under the influence of drugs. And she has no identification and she wouldn't talk to the police and she, she couldn't walk. And so they take her to a mental health and substance abuse facility. And then during that process, she claims that she's been raped. And again, she initially tells them it's 20 white men and later she reduces the number to three. And, you know, there, there's also she changes her story multiple times. Actually, the first time she said she'd been groped, and then she changed her story, and she gave many different versions to interviewers over the years. Um, but basically, this this incendiary claim of hers, which, by the way, this her, her the woman that was going along with her, the coherent stripper that that was in the car with her, is like, no, that didn't happen. This woman's not in her right mind. But the DA's office goes ahead and prosecutes this case. And so you can see in here several of the threads that will become, you know, the part of the racial reckoning, part of the Me Too era. While I share your contention that the idea that intentions don't matter and that whether or not she was making it up doesn't matter, I actually have um, a modicum of sympathy with the... uh, the faculty members that were saying, you know, this case may or may not be a rape. What it points to is a rotten culture. And they're right. Sure. Or in in this instance, they are correct. We can't we can't say this represents all fraternities doing something stupid. It doesn't. Of course it doesn't, because everybody, every, every case is going to be different. I agree with you there. This is it's it it started out as a gross thing to do. It's gross. However, however, and I'll let you continue because you know way, way more about this than, than I do. But the problem is when you say this points to 
something gross in the culture that we want to we want to clean out. We want to have sunshine. We want to have we want to apply some antiseptic. When you are going to exaggerate claims or or basically believe someone who is fabricating claims, what happens then? Then you start to create laws and consequences for something that didn't actually happen as opposed to the things that did actually happen. That's right. And now you start setting precedent. And this precedent means we will sacrifice people, reputations, people's lives, because we feel that these things have happened. It may not have happened in this case, but it's happened. And in order to do better in the future, we are going to even, uh, they're not saying they're making examples of these guys. They're just saying, we don't care. We yeah. don't care That's if right. they're guilty. We are going to apply this pressure. That is not, from my point of view, what grownups are supposed to do, and especially not grownups that are in charge of, of young people and yeah. education and, or anybody this is a terrible, terrible precedent to send. And I and I will I will stand on that ground. I, I agree with you that terrible things happen. I agree that I understand these the group of 88, who, by the way, and I'm sure you'll get to this, if you think that they then came out and said, sorry, we made a mistake, you are sorely, sorely mistaken. Right. Because nobody in this position, in this culture, ever says that they're sorry for making a mistake because then you can't continue to pave your road to uh, potential uh, sunshine on me for being the good guy for fighting the bad guys. So anyway, group sorry. Of, group of 88 is not going to back down. Uh, they're called no. that because there were 88 signatures in the student newspaper. Um, so this goes to the DA's office and the prosecutor, Mike Nifong or Nifong. Mm-hmm. You know, this guy... Uh, was running for office and he was pushing this, you know, uh, trying to look like the good guy. It it snapped back in his face and he's eventually disbarred. But before we get to that, um, he goes hard on this case. And, you know, there had been a fair bit of police malpractice along the way. I mean, one of the things that the police do is that they show Crystal photo arrays to identify her attackers, but it's the only photos she gets shown are people from the Duke lacrosse team. There's none of the, what you could call fillers that are meant yeah. to like throw you out. Like that's how you supposed, yep. you're supposed to do a police lineup. She only gets shown the Duke lacrosse players. So, so she can't be wrong. She, well, she, I mean, you she, know, she's going to choose she, she, three people and it's like she had a hundred percent chance of choosing someone on the Duke lacrosse team. So, um, but it, it turns out that the three people she chose in some ways she was wrong because they all had alibis. Um, so anyway, uh, wow, how that was inconvenient, wasn't it? It was very inconvenient to her. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the other thing I want to mention is that there's again, a, like a little bit of police malpractice here because the notes from the sergeant in this case don't line up with what the investigators had found. So that came out later. So a lot of people in this case are going to be, are going to be besmirched by their participation in this. But, uh, but at the time we, we might, one might imagine they felt that they were serving justice, that they were, they were moving the needle a little bit in a, in the way that the needle needed right. to be moved. Right. They the ends justify the means. The right. ends that, justify the means. Right. Right. Um, 
So one thing I want to say is that 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 the prosecutor Mike Nifong Nifong Nifong, um, why can't anybody just be named Smith anymore? I this is like the <laughs> fifth last name that I'm like had to do like four different pronunciations. Um, so anyway, he gives fifty to seventy interviews in in the next week, and and he estimates that he devoted about forty hours to reporters, and this is two thousand and six, and I just I. The Jeff Schillenberger piece does a great job of contextualizing this narrative in terms of the academic world, but I'd like to do a little contextualizing in terms of the media world. Oh, let's. Yeah. So one of the things that he points out is that 2006 is the year that Twitter and Facebook uh, kind of hit the culture, but they really don't have the steam. What was going on in 2006 was an explosion of blogs and an explosion of online comments. Publications like Huffington Post, which debuted in 2005, and the Drudge Report, which really starts in 1995 as a newsletter, but by the mid-aughts had really like, I used to run a blog at nerve.com and I the first thing I would do every morning was check Drudge Report because they were really moving the conversation in terms of what stories they wanted to feature. And this new dictate of like faster is better. Uh, don't worry about the facts. You know, this is a complete upending of what journalism had been. I remember I had a friend that was working at the New York Times website at the time. And, you know, understandably, she would complain about these reporters that were very old school and they did not want to be online. They thought it was reckless. They thought it was, this is from the years of like 2001, two, three, four, five. You know, they thought it was reckless. They thought it was um, more than they, it was more work than they wanted to do. They thought there was, a, there was still at that time a sense that, that online was lesser. Oh, sure. And, and so one of the things that happens as these old school journalists are kind of holding on to their old ways and their old paychecks is that young people are brought in to fill up these blogs. Young people that really aren't necessarily schooled in the tools of journalism, but it's not even valuable that they would have the tools of journalism because what we really need them to do is react mm -hmm. and we need them to aggregate. And so stories like this start to fill up online spaces. And I'll give you a very specific example at salon.com, which is where I eventually started to work in 2007. But the year before in 2006, the year of the Duke Lacrosse case, this story had been something of a bugaboo for the writers of a feminist blog called Broadsheet, which I would eventually be placed in charge of. But they were, you know, a group of extremely smart um, women that felt like women's narratives and concerns were not being addressed in mainstream media. You could think of it as something like a little bit of a highbrow view. This predates Jezebel and Double X, but it was a little bit more like old school feministy. The year before I got there, which also this is around the time that publications are opening up online comments, 
which is like a Pandora's box. They oh, don't even boy. know what's going to happen. Yeah, no. But these writers, and I don't really know how many of them, but like at least a couple of them, went in really hard on this Duke lacrosse thing. Like they really doubled down on it. Even as it was starting to unravel, it was like, well, wait, no, 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 no. And the commenters just ripped them to shreds. Ripped the writers to shreds? The writers, or, the writers, so the writers. Were the, so the commenters at that point were like, hey, wait, hold your horses. We need more, we yes. need more meat on these bones. Sorry well, if that was and, and that, that was, uh, you know, the commenters were saying things that were more like, you fucking feminists always jump to oh, conclusions. Yeah, yeah. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. So it was very much both sides digging in their heels. Yeah. And so by the time I took over in 2007, one of the intractable, intractable problems we had on the site was that we had a group of almost super fan troll commenters who made it their business like their first and most important business was to comment on every single broadsheet post. And they would say, they would talk a lot about the Duke, like anytime a rape thing came out, it was like, remember the Duke lacrosse thing. And the writers themselves were feeling very bullied. Um, they were but feeling what? like they were being hung out to dry. Like there were, there was no comment moderation at the time. So it's like, Every time they post, there's going to be like five people that just basically say they suck and peeing on them as soon as anything goes up. And then, you know, we we had this really bizarre symbiotic relationship with the with the commenters because the comments thread started to become like the most read thing. And and at this point, like traffic is the the golden fleece. And so you just need traffic numbers. So our comments are going bananas. Everybody wants to read them because they basically want to see the flame wars that are happening there. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Were, were some of the commenters good enough that they were almost like acting as a fact check department or was it just vitriol or a combination of both? Because this predates my arrival there, I wouldn't be able to say that. I can say okay. that salon commenters as a general as a general genre, were pretty smart. Um, they were often like PhDs uh, that didn't seem to have done much with the PhDs aside from schooling people in the comment section. Um, as it went on, kind of like a bad neighborhood, the good commenters went away um, because they didn't like dealing with these very aggressive and really nasty commenters but they often had it was not the youtube commentary of like you suck you suck go away it would be like these like 500 word thousand word tirades on various you know like philosophical blah 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 blah, blah. my eyes would just like i remember reading these and just being like oh my god um because you couldn't quite dismiss it out of hand you know you couldn't just ban them because uh, a lot of times they were making valid points, but they were doing it with such, like, a fever pitch. And you know what this reminds me of? Is we've talked about John Ronson's podcast. 
And, you know, one of the things that's Which so is called uh, Things Fall Apart. And just so everybody fell knows. Apart. Things, things fell, fell apart. apart. Things fell apart. And just so everybody knows, we if you're just listening to this on Apple or wherever you get your, your podcasts, we do have fairly extensive show notes, um, which can also be fun because we put like bonus videos and stuff in there. But we have links to just about everything that we're talking about if you want to do a little bit of a deeper dive. Okay, go ahead. Okay, Sorry. Yeah. Um, I was reminded of the first episode of Things Fell Apart because one of the stories that emerges out of that is that, you know, the the abortion video in How Shall We Now Live that like sparks this whole thing. Like nobody really cared about it at the time, except that there were these media stories about it. And then the feminists started protesting. And then the evangelicals and all the like religious zealots start protesting the feminists. So the central, the central like um, fracas is not even about abortion. It's between feminists who are often like, like speaking in a way that this, the rest of the crowd that shows up feels sort of denigrated to like they're sort of elite co- East coast snobs. And then this other group that's being very dismissive and hateful towards these feminists. You know, they're like, they're ugly, they don't shave their armpits, yada, yada, yada. Which speaks to my observation that I think one of the the sort of things at the bottom, the sort of taproot of the culture wars, is really an argument over what women are going to be and what role they will play in society. People often call it misogyny, but I think what the other side would tell you is, no, we love women. We love women. We worship mothers and, and, you know, these are women themselves. We just think that, that the role of a woman is, is more traditional in terms of family and connectedness. And we're less interested in, in this idea of women being in men's roles. Anyway, I'm getting a little bit far afield from the, from the case itself as I am want to do. <laughs> um, I, I don't know how much more I have to say about the Duke lacrosse case. You certainly know more about it than I do. But the thread that keeps, the thread that runs from there till, you know, today and will be tomorrow is people claiming that they are under assault when, in fact, that, you know, of course, people have been under assault. All kinds of people through time immemorial have been under assault. But you can't, use fake accusations of that to move the culture in a way forward that you think it should move because it's going to fall apart. If I say to you, and we're going to get to this case about uh, Elizabeth Finch in, in, in Vanity Fair. If I say to you, Sarah Hepla, Sarah Hepla, I have cancer. I have cancer. And because I have cancer, and, I don't, and I'm not going to say it directly. I mean, I might say it directly. I might be aggressive to you or I might sort of be, you know, sort of voce about it. But I need special consideration and I need the culture to bend to me and I need our work environment to bend to my needs because of my disability and because of the things historically that have happened to people who've had cancer and haven't been cared for. And then you find out after two, three, five years of doing this that I don't have cancer. 
how have we helped moving the culture forward? And I realize that's sort of an extreme example with the Duke case. But if you take these people that have not done what they are accused of doing and you publicly destroy their lives in order to make things better for women, how have you made things better for women? Well, I don't know. I think all of these cases, for whatever quote-unquote justice you have, you sow seeds of resentment that that fester for decades. And I could see that in the comment section. I mean, and, the, and then that just, so, like, it's like two reinforcing sides, right? So, like, the feminist writers were just getting more and more upset and angry. I mean, understandably, because they were getting attacked all the time by these guys. And so that just leads to a sort of like dehumanizing, dismissive reaction to their, to their claims. And then the other side is just getting, I mean, every, everyone's just getting more resentful and that's what, you know, we, you, you reap what you sow is what the Bible taught us. And I'm not big on the Bible, but we have to look at what we've sown here. And, you know, I, I want to close the loop on this case before we go to another topic, the, the the charges were eventually dropped close to a year after this, as I've already discussed. The um, the prosecutor was, you know, he resigned and then he was disbarred. And this is a, this is an unusual thing where like there was actual you know, repercussions for the people. Because I've I've actually covered some of these cases where like there are no repercussions, only rewards for people that participate in this kind of circus. I want to just add something to that because that was such a fascinating part of the piece. Uh, the prosecutor who had lied and devoted all this time to trying to, you know, make sure that this case was going to go the way he wanted, which these boys were guilty. And the evidence didn't prove that, including them being exonerated because when she said the rape was happening, they were actually seen at an ATM and it was timestamped. He had to face consequences because we have a system of laws that says you need to prove these things. They were disproved. He was then he he had to be he had to lose his job because he lied and did a terrible job. Whereas the people that just did this in the court of public opinion the, the group of 88, they were still celebrated. They were still went on to get, in some cases, better jobs. I don't think, I did any of them apologize and say we got it wrong? So if you're living within a system of laws, you then will face consequences. But if it's just the court of public opinion, huh, whatever, we'll just go on. We don't care what damage we've sown, including to the causes we say we are so dedicated to fighting for. We don't care if our tools are illegitimate. We don't care. What we care about is that we appear to be heroic and that we appear to be pushing the culture forward. Now, the culture is getting better. Things are getting better. But I am going to argue it is not, it is not due to people believing false accusations. I don't see how that can I don't see how believing false narratives moves us to a better place in the culture. I could be wrong. Maybe that's the way culture always moves forward, is right. we believe the false narratives and, you know, the ends justify the means, Nancy, which I personally do not ever believe. I do not ever believe the ends justify the means. Well, you're fighting an uphill battle, Nancy, and I'll fight it with you, but I just want to let you know that because most of history is mythology. We we build, we tell the stories that we need. And, 
you know, I'm not talking about history books in general. I'm talking about the way history is encoded through songs and movies. Um, you know, people are complicated, but didactic narratives need to be simple. And I've thought a lot about all these cases that have blown up in the press. You know, I listened to a interview between John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry, who were revisiting the Trayvon Martin case 10 years later and looking at Mike Brown and some of the other cases that resulted in the Black Lives Matter moment. There was a lot about the Trayvon Martin that, story that I completely missed. Me, uh, me too. I listened to it too after you told me you listened to it. And I, I knew something about this because I'd listened to some of that before. And I'd listened to the Sam Harris episode a couple of years ago at the beginning of 2020 about race and policing and, and how some of the things we believe. And of course, I've seen this in Portland myself, and I'll, I'll get to that a little bit. But I did learn certain things about the Trayvon Martin case, which I had no idea about at all. I had no idea. And and which is you know, it's kind of shocking. Um, and I and I have to say, and I and I know that you're with me here, Sarah Heppola, mm, that boys. were we were we reporting on this case, which I didn't. I was I didn't cover that case at all. Had I been, I would have felt it imperative to get the facts right. It's so 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 important. To I get think I would have quit right. my job. I think I would have quit my fucking job. Seriously. If what if if what if I had need- to report on that case when it came out. Because why you would have been asked to report it in a way that, yeah. So that, so we're, you know what, we're, we're, what we're going to have in the show notes, we're going to have some links. People are going to want to believe it or not, but you, you can just take a listen to what actually happened in this case. And apparently there's also a documentary that I, I didn't know about that, um, that, that Lowry mentions, which is, which is kind of interesting about the case. Well, he mentions the, the Mike Brown documentary, which is by Shelby Steele and his son, I believe Eli Steele. And, uh, it's an excellent, it's a really interesting re, you know, telling of, the Mike Brown case in its many complexities. It, it, I believe I watched it on Amazon, but had a little trouble at first. It was not carried on Amazon for a while. And one of the difficulties with this is sort of like once you like the, the mythologies have endless channels for release. And if you tell a more complicated story, the channels are pretty blocked to you. I know that firsthand from several different stories I've been working on myself. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about the people in this case and what happens to them. I will say that the Duke president did apologize in 2007. He apologizes to the families for causing them to feel abandoned. He sticks around for another 10 years, but like that's, that's worth, that's worth. That's definitely worth. That's, that's, that's definitely worth mentioning because he's the president of a university. If he does not apologize for his point of this, how can you trust him? That's right. To run a university. No, I'm very, I'm very heartened to hear that because you don't hear that a lot. That's right. Uh, Duke, though, they do demolish the house where the party took place. Um, It had been unoccupied for four years after the lacrosse case. They just tore it down. All right. Well, real estate. Um, There's a sad story um, post post note about the sergeant in this case. Um, You know, he was uh, besmirched for. Like I said, having some discrepancies in the notes that were taken by the investigator and then what he did, um, what he reported, he committed suicide in 2014. Now, how did he, was he trying to, was he trying to further besmirch the boys or was he trying to say, hey, wait a second, it didn't really happen this way? Um, 
or neither. I, I don't know. I, I believe that he was one of the people that was pushing pushing the envelope a little bit to make it seem a certain way so that these guys would be indicted. Uh, having work, having loved someone who was a sergeant in um, a homicide unit, I know that one of his most important mandates, now I'm talking about somebody that I know named Nick. I'm not talking about Sergeant Mark Gottlieb. I don't know him. But I do know that people come in in certain flavors and cops have a pretty common one amongst each other. And, you know, Nick's thing was like, it was so important to him to protect women. He was known as a reformer in the system, you know, to get rape kits um, investigated and, and get justice for women. The, this was something that was just like of utmost importance to him. And in his observation, it was true of a lot of people in the department. I think they're often portrayed as misogynists who protect men in power. I don't doubt that that's true as well. I just want people to know that there are a lot of there are a lot of other kinds of cops. And it's a very strong strain of cop that really, really just feels like women deserve protection. And it's their job to do this. They want to put themselves in the line of fire um, for that. And I do not have any idea uh, if there is any connection between yeah. his disgrace over this case and him killing himself seven years later. We can imagine we don't there know. were many, many things that happened uh, between that. He was at that point working as a paramedic. But I can't help telling you that that hit me a little bit in my heart. Um, I also want to follow up on Crystal Mangum. Um, she did go finish college. You know, in 2006, Jesse Jackson had offered to pay her college tuition and said the tuition would be good even if she'd fabricated the story. Uh, okay. I mean, he, he's allowed to do that. In May of 2008, she graduated from North Carolina Central University with a degree in police psychology. And so it was starting to look a lot better for Crystal, but it's going to start to look a lot worse. Um, because in 2010, she's arrested on charges of attempted murder of her live-in partner. And she's eventually convicted of contributing to the delinquency of a juvenile and injury to personal property and resisting an officer. Uh, but then in November 2013, she's found guilty of second degree murder after she oh stabs God. her boyfriend who <gasps> dies 10 days later. She says that she was acting in self-defense, fearing that he would kill her. And she's sentenced to 14 to 18 years in prison. There is a ESPN documentary about this. Uh, it's from 2016. It's called Fantastic Lies. Uh, I My understanding is it's very good. I have not watched it myself. They asked Crystal to tell her side of the story. She still claims that she was sexually assaulted. Um, she wanted to, but the prison would not allow her. So that is where this story stands. I wonder if you have told a pretty big lie. And I think that the evidence proves that she did tell a pretty big lie. And, you know, she was doing drugs at the time. People <laughs> are not in great shape. Um, but then your particular, because people are supporting that lie, you then have to defend that lie. That's right. Uh, how much that corrodes your spirit 
and you uh, and where that leads you. It's almost like you're on a road and you you take a slight you know wrong turn and then everybody's telling you, oh no, but keep going on that wrong turn because that's the wrong turn we support. And then where does that that road lead you to? It's, that's right. It's it's not good. I mean, you know, you, that's right. you this is what. Whoa, God, big thunder here. I don't know if you can hear that, peoples. Um, but it's sort of like what I I I you know I think it's really beautiful. You're so smart. You're talking about how you know we do we mythology you know leads us forward. We from from time immemorial. That's how we that's how we understand ourselves and the culture and the world. And 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 sometimes those things are written by people that are are fabricating things, but. I also have to believe, because I'm the eternal optimist, that we can, that our stories can be based on um, pushing people to tell more truths. And, yeah. and, 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 and one thing that always kind of gets me super sad is when, because we want to make things better than they were in the past, we, we support people's stories of, what is the phrase, um, don't, don't, don't fight for your own, uh, oh, what's that called? Not disabilities, for your own, oh, what's the, I don't know. I can't fight remember for your right word. to party? Is this, no, are you yeah, that's it, fight that's for it. Your right to no, party? for your own people, fight for their own, like, uh, weaknesses or whatever it is. And, you know, people are, I think it's our responsibility to not help people fight for their own perceived weaknesses or disabilities, but to, help them go past these things and, um, and, and, and just push on to the next thing, which is why that article that you sent me from the New Yorker was about, I guess about a month ago, ago by, um, Parul Segal. I can't remember the name of it, but it's about, uh, PTSD and trauma. The trauma plot. The trauma plot. I, this article, I couldn't stop scribbling all over it because I was like, people are fighting so, so hard for their traumas. That's yeah. what they fight for. They get up in the morning and they're like, I am going to fight for this. I am going to fight for the fact that I can't move forward or I will be defined by X, whether it's my my eating disorder, that I'm shorter than other people, that my father was terrible to me, that I'm of some sort of, in quotes, marginalized culture. I will fight for these and I will get my people around me and we will then, we will have this hermetically sealed world where we are defined by our trauma. And as you very well know, because you were editor of a place that monetized this, there was a certain, yeah. there was a certain time in like the mid, like around, I don't know, like 2005 or something, like all anybody wanted from women was they wanted stories of your trauma. They wanted stories of the hardship you faced. And I'll go back to my own life around, uh, my daughter was born in 1989. I was, I split with her dad in 1992. I was raising her. It was great. It was like so much better to just be like doing it in some ways by myself. But it was the era of the single mother, everything, yeah. <gasps> single mother. And people would say things to me like, oh my God, Nancy, it's got to be, oh my God, it's so got to be so hard. So hard so I brave. swear so to fucking Christ, it was like constantly having to rip off this itchy sweater that people were trying to put on me. And I was like, get this sweater away from me. I don't need this. I don't want it. And first of all, it's not true. It is just not true. It's not true for me. I don't know. Some people might feel this way. I'm not well, going to tell me why it's not true. Because it's, it's first of all, hard. why is single mother uh, not hard? It's of course well, not hard. Okay. Well, I, 
Well, first of all, because when I split with her dad, her dad at the time, okay, bless him, died in 2019. Love him. Love you, Tim. From right around this area, from Okmulgee. He'd been a very, very active alcoholic when he was together. Stopped drinking the week I left him. But let me tell you, living with a super active alcoholic where there's like people fighting in the living room, you get in the morning and there's someone's tooth on the rug, like was not so freaking easy while I'm like working two two jobs trying to support the family. Um, So basically it was not like me and my kid, like I was in charge. I was like, everything was just like super calm and I liked it. Was it hard financially sometimes? Yes. Did I have to call home more than once to my mother and say, can you help me pay for private preschool? Yes, I did. But you know what? Okay. So like you ask for help every once in a while. It's fine. I did not look. I don't know what, I don't know what aspects of single motherhood are supposed to like, what are you supposed to be beleaguered and exhausted and Calgon take me away? I don't know. All I know is that I did not want somebody else. Just, we've talked about this before. No labels, please. Writer and mother. That's it. I don't want anything else. Nothing, nothing. Maybe Baker. I'm a pretty good Baker. I'll take Baker, but nothing. Don't, don't impose it upon me. Anyway, this article, and it's something I talk about all the time. It's like, why are you fighting for your trauma? Why don't you take that energy and fight for like, let's look into the future, right? Why do we want to sit here? And we, what I was going to say is trauma became, it became monetized. What were you paying for? What kind of essays were you paying for? And I'm not saying people shouldn't write these essays. They can yeah. write whatever they want, but it's like that is the more sort of sacred space is for people to be traumatized and you will now like have a spot in the culture where you are the special delicate flower and all the rest of us have to go, oh, yes, oh, yes. Well, no, I don't want to do that. I want to freaking keep walking into the world and doing stuff. And frankly, I would rather spend my time like talking about like the cool stuff that you can do. Not the stuff that you have to drag around like this giant hayloft of a thing that you're dragging all of this stuff around with you for the rest of your life or hayloft, hay bale, whatever, hay thing. It's like, let's go forward, okay? Solutions, not problems. Let's move forward. Uh, This is so cute. Uh, I love it when you get worked (laughs) up. I get mad. But but I have a couple thoughts on this, like a lot of thoughts on this. But I, you know, I think one of the things I I was the, I started at Salon as a like general culture assistant editor and I rose in the ranks to the actual culture editor. And then I, uh, personal essays editor was kind of my my big deal. That was a, a name that they created for me because it didn't exist. And I was particularly good at coaxing personal essays out of people. And so it's your finding fault. It's your essays. fault, I, I'm just Heppel. saying, like, you, I know you think you're attacking the culture right now, but you're attacking little Sarah Heppola in 2008, just trying to make her, make her rent. Um, I found from uh, I just was really good at this. I was good at writing them and I was good at sharing them. Um, there is no question that they overselected for trauma. And I want to give you some reasons why I think that was an important expansion of, of narratives that were being told at the time. Um, at the time, social media was exploding and social media really selected for sort of perfectionism. And it was kind of like, here's my beautiful house and my day was great and everything went perfect. And it was personal narrative, but it was personal narrative that was a lie. And I really understood my mandate to be personal narrative that told the truth. And they were stories that you might not have otherwise heard. Um, 
I felt like a lot of them disrupted really interesting ideas. I mean, I think we ran too many stories about how motherhood sucked. But a lot of those women were pushing back against a narrative that had told them that motherhood was going to be wonderful, but more importantly, that they were a failure for having struggles. I mean, that was really the difficult thing was like they had it was like piercing this idea of perfectionism. Now, where that perfectionism came from, I think, is an interesting story. Like, was it something they were bringing to this? Um, was it something that society was doing? I mean, and I've observed in my friends who are mothers, they have much higher standards for themselves than their than their husbands do. Their husbands are kind of like, ah, let it go. Like, let the kids sleep in. Let the, the who cares? And the, and we'll the have moms, again. Yeah, and the moms are like, no, we got to do this, that, and the other thing. Um, oh, man, but I, you, you know, are but look, so right. I, 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 I don't know. I'm I'm not a mother. We've made this point, and uh, you know. I, 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 I did a lot of stories that I think were exceptional. I did a lot of stories that I think were flat out mediocrities. I had to do four stories a week. Um, that was a really large mandate, um, for essays. And I certainly lowered the bar. I was also trying to write a book at a certain point because I had gotten sober. Getting sober brings me to another place that I think I also have some insight here. I think I sometimes think that this trauma world, it certainly has something to do with 12-step culture. And, and, and you know, Bill Wilson writes the big book with some other people, but mostly by himself, in 1939, and introduces the idea of AA, um, which had had some success in turning hopeless alcoholics into really quite upstanding citizens that were eager to like offer service in the world. AA is an idea that changed the culture. I think it's one of the most influential ideas of the 20th century because its ideas are adopted by all sorts of afflictions that are coming along with an affluent capitalist materialist society, which is telling you repeatedly that the that the fixes are outside of you. And AA is going to tell you again and again that the call is coming from inside of the house. It's an inside job you need to fix yourself. So the idea, when I go to an AA meeting, which I haven't done in a while, um, but I am still sober. Uh, but you know, one of the things that we each say is we identify ourselves by our affliction. So it's, I'm Sarah and I'm an alcoholic. And that is actually a precursor for a lot of the stuff that you see, like for instance, in Twitter bios where it's like, I'm cis hat, or I can't, yeah, cis hat, um, you know, disabled, uh, pansexual or whatever. Um, this identity first has some roots in, in the 12 step movement. And I think they're all ways of working out what, again, you know, David Foster Wallace says best in infinite jest, which is this idea that America is uniquely, um, designed for addiction. And that you know the idea of trauma, we can talk about that separately. You know, it, uh, why, why so much trauma? Well, I think a lot of this stuff is about the sexual revolution, uh, and it's it's unintended consequences. But I don't know. What are your thoughts? I wanted to say something because you said something a few minutes ago about you know you you come to these meetings or what Bill W said and it, and you said you use the words offer service. Okay, so you can 
have a trauma, sure. And you can identify yourself. You could say, I'm Sarah Heppel, I'm an alcoholic. But then there's another step, and that is to offer service, okay? And I think what we see ourselves stuck in, in some cases, are people that don't get past that step. It's like, I am going to have my trauma, and now I need everyone to pay attention to me. It's not that I'm going out and now I'm saying, okay, yeah, I, you know what, I survived cancer or I was a single mother or whatever, and now I will offer service. We are, we are, we are in a culture that, well, not all of us, obviously, but we see definitely the repercussions of it, that people put their trauma on their chest like a badge yeah. and then use it to attack other people that do not, in their estimation, properly respect, make laws for, and make accommodations for that trauma. That trauma is now turned into something that is going to get them their way. Whatever their way is, if it's personal, if it's a larger political issue, and I, this is what we see over and over and over again, as opposed to people saying, yeah, okay, I've had some shitty things happen to me. All of us have, right? But now I'm going to go and be of service which is what I, I, I basically think, I think that's why we're here. You know, you're trying to be of service by, by telling the truth and by, um, by, you know, doing the best work that you can, not asking for the spotlight to constantly be turned on you so then you can turn it into something super caustic that mows other people down. Yeah. That's what I've seen. And I think that's article in the New Yorker was just, I mean, where there's just one, there's just one little thing. I mean, I, I underlined a thousand pieces of it. But there's a there's a, a a manual here, a recent manual here called "Stories Are What Save Us: A Survivor's Guide to Writing About Trauma," and the author advises, "Don't bother trying to rid yourself of trauma altogether. Forget about happy endings. You will lose. Escaping trauma isn't unlike trying to swim out of a riptide." Okay, Jesus. so first of all, fuck that. Second of all. I have swam out of two riptides, literal riptides in the ocean. Okay, you know how you do that? You swim perpendicular, perpendicular, is that what it's like at an angle? And to the shore. Perpendicular, you're so cute. Perpendicular, and to the shore. So yes, actually, I would advise, I, I think that that person wrote that, she may very well believe it. But it also sells books and it also creates industries where people can keep you in your trauma because, you know, if they say, if they say, you know, politics is downstream from culture, well, psychiatry is downstream from culture too. And these are, you know, we're going to keep people in this trauma loop because this makes sense for us. This woman is, or I think it's a woman that wrote the, the manual, is going to sell a lot more things if she tells you, don't you dare, don't right. you dare try to get out of that trauma. You're going to lose. And actually, that is actually not true because all of us, I was going to say all of us in this room, all of us in this pod, in this podcast can have to be said to have some like, I don't know, kind of probably not great things happen, but you know what? I don't know. It really kind of depends on how you look at it and what you do with it. And as you walk on into the sunshine, because guess what? It's right over here. Maybe not right outside my window where it's thunderstorming right now, but it's right there. Yeah. It's right there and you can do that. And actually you should do that. And you should do that 
not only for yourself because it's more interesting than living under the little bell jar of your trauma, but because you're going to meet a lot of other interesting people that are going to want to talk about something besides your trauma. Yeah, some shit went down in in usually everyone's life, in the course of a human life that happens. One of the things I've observed is the way that you can grow out of that, but that drugs and alcohol tend to keep it locked in. It tends to be something that presents it as as an escape and becomes more of a new prison. Um, I do want to tell you one thing about Crystal before I know we're about to pivot to something else. Sure, sure. But uh, I find this relevant that back in 1996 when she was a stripper, so that's 10 years before this has happened, uh, and she was 18 years old, she told a police officer that she'd been raped by three men three years before, and then she dropped the case. Now, this is an unreliable narrator, and it's really unclear whether that just represents another invented story, but I can't help wondering in that raped by three men, if this story that she's, she's you know, it's, it's a fabulism, but it has some sort of root in her experience or body. And I think one of the reasons why these mythologies take hold so deeply is because they're usually not out and out fabrications. There's usually something in it that either is true or sounds true or feels true. And the reason is because maybe it wasn't this attack that traumatized you and that made you, you know, do X, Y, and Z, but it was something that happened in your childhood. But now you're crying about it through this. Like there's a, there's like a, there's like a grief trans- ventriloquy going on. And, um, well, transference is when you fall in love with your psychologist. Is that, wait, really? Yeah. That's an actual, whoa, transference is when you fall in love with your psychologist? Yeah, totally. There's like a season of in therapy that talks about this. Or, or like or like you give your therapist, you know, like idealized traits and uh, think of them as like a mother figure or a best friend or whatever like that. I had to look into it at some point. Oh, I've wow. never I had thought a it, guy therapist, but. I thought it was just transferring like one particular experience and propulsing it like someplace else. Okay. What do well, I that know? That sounds very realistic as well. Okay, but anyway, that's, I just, I just wanted to say that because I, I, I think that the, the trauma, you know, it's not like trauma has been invented. There is something, I also think sexual violence and sexual abuse and physical abuse has been going on throughout human history. We just didn't have names for it. We didn't have pathologies for it. We just called it a human life. So anyway, um, yeah, I really am eager to hear about this Vanity Fair con woman because I, I, I didn't read this story. I will I will get to that in one second, but just to go back to one second to the trauma plot, uh, there were some really interesting parts in there about when, when um, trauma became something that was somewhat sort of shameful, like they were talking about like shell shock in, in, in World War I. They called these people like mental deficients or something and, 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 and really kind of shat on them, which is terrible, uh, to then when it started to become like kind of medicalized and an okay thing to when it started to become an identity and not celebrated so much, but handled with, with great care. And I'll just tell one quick story. I was having, um, there's the uh, journalist, William Langesfeischer, who I'm sure, you know, we'll put some links to his books in the show notes. And I interviewed him. Every time you say his last name, I'm like, wow, she nailed that. See, it's, it's one thing I can pronounce. And, uh, we went out later on that night, we went and had some drinks and we were talking about some stuff and he, you know, he's writes about these 
pretty big issues. He writes about like nuclear weaponry and the ocean and the skies. And he was a pilot. You know, he's 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 like a kind of just a dude, right? And he looked at me and he's like, when did every soldier have to have PTSD? Like, when did that happen? It's like, yeah, like when, when, when did they, it's not saying like, it's not, of course, some people will experience this, but we also know, I'm sure, I don't think I have the article in front of me, but what was it in the, in the, in the, the trauma plot? There are now like more than 650,000 definitions of what has happened to you that is now, is now uh, categorized under PTSD. Well, right? of so, course, because it, you know, there's a, there's a concept creep here. So it starts right, out being right. something that specifically identifies the experience of a soldier in war. And then it starts getting into, you know, survivors of sexual abuse. Uh, you know, I had Taffy Brodesser Ackner, who's a wonderful writer, wrote wonderful a, a, writer about getting diagnosed with PTSD after her childbirth because she had mm. a traumatic childbirth. It's, it's, you know, and, and one of the things I love about Taffy is she's just like, yeah, I know it sounds ridiculous. Like, it's so stupid. I think it's stupid too, but this is real. Like she, and you know, it's a, it's a diagnosis. She was given it, you know? So like, yeah. so anyway, it it's to answer the question of when did soldiers all get PTSD? We would want to know the question, when did the word PTSD become invented? And then how does it get sort of spread through the culture. Uh, they they all have it because they all know it. They all know the name for it. There is something inside of us that we can all not name. And when somebody gives us a word for it, whether it's trauma, PTSD, whatever, uh, oftentimes people reach for it. But there are also people, like I was saying about the single motherhood and itchy sweaters, who basically say, please don't Please don't put that on me. I and 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 the writer talks about something that we've spoken to about before, which is that there's also something called post traumatic growth syndrome. Okay, you you have something happen and you're like, okay, well that, that happened and now I'm gonna what am I gonna do with it? Oh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna build a beautiful thing. I'm gonna build a beautiful castle and go on my way, as opposed to sitting sitting there. Okay, I'm gonna pivot here. I'm going to try not to have my eyeball fly out of my head and hit the screen here, Sarah Hepla. So yesterday I read an article. There was a two-part piece. I didn't read the second piece. And it's about a writer on Grey's Anatomy or a former writer named Elizabeth Finch and how um, she uh, had been diagnosed with a terrible cancer. So she she had written for another show. I can't remember what it was. And then she got her dream job, which was writing for um, writing for Grey's Anatomy. Which and- I'm, one of the big surprising turns, plot twists of this story is that Grey's Anatomy is still on. Yeah, I, I've never even seen it. So I've I, I never can't, I can't even stay up. seen it. So she joins it. You know, there's a writer's room when you're in Hollywood. There's like 17 writers and you get together and you discuss discuss plots. And she was diagnosed as a fairly young woman. I think she was in her, in her 30s with a bone cancer called chondrosarcoma. All right. So this is a new writer in the room. She's going through cancer. It's a terrible cancer. And she is surrounded by new people. And of course they're, you know, t- and this is also a Shonda Rhimes. That her, is that her name? The, the TV yeah. producer that's done like everything. It's a Shonda Rhimes joint. Right. So she, this woman now, before I, I say what I remember about this story, um, this is what happens when you start to reward trauma, okay? When you start to make more exceptions than you might. If I'm in a writer's room with you, Sarah Heppala, and I don't come to work, 
I just don't come. I can't finish my story or I have a hangover or I demand a three-week vacation or whatever. I'm out. At a certain point, be like, you know what, Nancy? It's only 17 of us here. It's a big show. You got to go. However, if I have a bad cancer, not only will I be allowed these things, but there will be certain allowances made, certain handling of kid gloves, certain parties thrown for me, certain wishes granted. Now, what happens, however, and I've written about people like this, and we're going to get to that in a second, is when this is your currency, when your currency is a terrible trauma, it's not enough to just have that trauma, okay? You have to keep you have to keep giving people reasons to make allowances for you. And I, and I sent you a few little things yesterday, and I thought I would refer to them right here. And here is one particular uh, thing that she r- was written in the article. Again, this was in Vanity Fair. I'm sorry. Okay. And this is about, we're talking about Elizabeth Finch here. She carried her heart and her cancer on her sleeve. She was visibly sick and getting sicker. In addition to the bald head and scarves, she wore a bandage over a presumed port on her upper chest area. You could see it behind her baggy tank top and cardigan. Her skin had a yellowish-greenish hue, which she covered with badly blended cover-up. She could sometimes be heard retching in the bathroom, at which point the producers would insist, please, go home. No, no, came the valiant reply. I just want to be here. Let me just do one hour more. Okay, so I just want to say, having cancer in that case is a that's a that's a she's pretty creative there. And I will she's give, like the Jesse Smollett of yeah. oh, trauma. Absolutely, and, and I and I will give her that she's she's pretty creative there. I'll say one thing before I get back to this: having uh, all of us here, unfortunately, when you hit your forties and fifties and beyond, you are going to know someone who has had cancer and dies. It, it's it's going to be inevitable. It's an inevitability of our world. I've known several, including my father's dad, who lived with us for a year and was so fucking noble and wonderful throughout all of this. Really really fucking hard shit. I was with him when he died. We were watching tennis. The last voice he heard was John McEnroe's. Um, <laughs> and I and I have to say, while this Elizabeth Finch is pretty creative in doing this, in playing on people's sympathies, because, sorry, spoiler alert, she didn't have cancer. Um, Did she have anything? No. She had, she had a desperate need for attention and for not doing the job that she was being paid to do. So she was going to figure out creative. Do you think she felt in, did she feel like feel in over her head? So this was, no, no, she'd been doing this for a while. Okay. This is someone I'll, I'll address that in a second, but let me just finish with my, with my ex. I, I, I'm, I think it would be probably kind of crude of me to say, well, fuck her for faking this. But here's the thing. When you, have lived with someone who has gone through this, you learn, oh my God, you learn, oh, so I'm going to, now I'm going to cry. I'll be the crier this episode. You learn so, you learn so much. You learn so much about what people are capable of and what you're going to do and, and how you're going to care for people. And just these like beautiful, very, very difficult parts of life that you then are like, actually, I can do this and we are going to do this and we are going to be so grateful. I mean, my daughter and I, at some point, we're like, we're going to have a side hustle draining lungs because we could drain that lung, man, twice a week, 
boom, get it out. Do, do, do for daddy. Like, you know, and we did it with joy and we did it with love. So I get that Elizabeth Finch might even kind of like intuit that there's joy and love to be had from having a horrible cancer. But the thing is that you actually don't. And you are you are playing on people's sympathies. And that is, you can't do that to people. And people, people that don't lie don't expect that you're going to be lying. And my God, you're incredibly good at like at faking this. But she also became just like horrible and 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 mean and and needy. And I I we can't and, and first of all, this is always going to happen. I've written about, I'm going to put a link to here to Laura Albert. We've talked about this. She pretended to be a, you know, teenage transgender HIV positive teenage hooker in San Francisco. Meanwhile, she was a 40 something year old woman from Brooklyn, but she was getting like celebrities to read the the work of this JT Leroy. And, and, you know, when I interviewed her and talked to her and she's like, well, yeah, but you know, People liked doing this for me. You know, they liked feeling like absolutely. They were being we tell the stories that we, we need. We 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 ab- create the heroes that we want. We want to help people. Oh my God! I I I mean, constantly I see somebody falling down in the street. You're. I put a link yesterday. This incredible link up on Twitter to this. There was someone. I don't. I don't know where it was. There was a medical emergency. A woman in her car just like slowly like rolled through like heavy duty four lane you know traffic coming from four ways, mm. and people ran out of their oh my God, I'm going to cry. They ran out of their cars to stop this car. And then like someone ran to their car, they bashed a window. Like we are these people. We want to help people. We want to do that. And you know what? Be the people that help people. I I will do it until my dying breath, but do not be the person that fakes it in order to get help from, from people like the Jesse Smollett's, which by the way, I called instantly. Instantly, because I've written about so many of these people. I've written about the Laura Albrecht of the world. My book, To the Bridge, there is someone in there who was an absolute sociopath asking for people's attention. And and, and, uh, here's an alert. It wasn't the mother that threw the kids off the bridge. I wrote about a woman who there was a, I may have talked about this already, and I apologize if I'm repeating myself. Uh, There was a a small article in the Oregonian. It was a little tiny thing about this poor mother. Oh my God, this poor mother in in Vancouver, Washington, which is just over the bridge from Portland. She had fibromyalgia and she was unemployed. And so it was terrible, but she had to kill herself and her 14-year-old daughter. And I'm like, what? And like within, within five minutes online, I found out this woman, Lori Recht, back in the 1980s when she was at college at SUNY Purchase in New York, accused her neighbors of anti-Semitic hate crimes for painting SWAT stickers on her door. And she was, SWAT stickers, and she was, she was, she was filmed doing it herself, which by the way, this Elizabeth Finch also had that same thing happen in her past, right? Oh, my terrible neighbor's doing this to me. Well, we don't know that they did anything of the sort. It's kind of a common thing, right? So, and she actually got in trouble because it was a public college. So she, I don't know if she went to prison, but in any case, I went in and found that out. I I wrote the article, I talked to people, and I'm like, this woman's got Munchausen by proxy, which is when you you fabricate illnesses in someone that you're caring for, usually a parent and a child, in order to get attention and glory for yourself. And I talked to so many people, and like their eyes, when I came to them, they're like, oh my God, we thought, but we didn't know, we didn't want to say anything bad, we wanted to take care of her, she was so needy, we loved her daughter, her daughter that she put through the most terrible 
terrible things. And when I was going to press, I was going to press the next day. I'd been trying to reach, you know, doctors can't talk about this stuff because of HIPAA laws. You can't, you can't give out anybody's medical anything. But this one doctor finally called me back after like me constantly berating him. And I said, I want to tell you something. I'm going to press tomorrow saying that Lori Recht had Munchausen by proxy. And that is why she killed her, her daughter and herself. And he said, I would not dispute that. Wow. But that is a case when you believe people's lies of trauma. I'm sorry. It's getting me very emotional. You fucking lead to dead children sometimes. Okay. I've written about it twice. I've written about it twice. So when a story that I don't know, a Jesse Smollett or a Lori Rack, just like something or this Elizabeth Finch, it's just kind of not, you kind of feel like it's not okay, but maybe you don't want to say anything because these people are so, they're, they're literally parading their trauma. Think about it. Think about the fact that it also leads to dead kids. Sorry, I've said my piece. I have so many thoughts. Um, there was this moment where you were like really fired up and you were like really on a roll and you were just doing great. But you said, <laughs> instead of saying swastika, you said swastika. Swastika. Like a pot sticker. And I have been suppressing a giggle. And I started sweating. And because uh, you can see me. And then what you were saying was so righteous. I didn't know if it was the Brooklyn coming out to, out of you, like swastika um, instead of swastika. Is that with pork or with shrimp? Right on exactly. now. Yeah. But I, like, I, I, what you were saying was so, you know, important and moving. And I just, God dang. Um, one of the things about these stories, though, I have to say, I was, I always, ugh, like I wrote a story the first time I was ever in the New York Post. I've only been in there twice. Was uh, because of this. Um, I wrote a story about Jason Blair, the fabulist at New York Times. Yep, yep. And I had met Jason Blair, and he tried to kiss me, and it's a really creepy story. Ooh. But ooh, but <laughs> I had written a story that was really about my own kind of like dance with the devil with regard to fabulism. And like pushing the narrative, you know, because I have such a storyteller's flair that especially early in my career, I would sort of goose numbers or and like it wasn't really goose numbers. I'm sorry. That's not even true. It was really much more like pushing quotes. Like how much can you get away with? I never really knew. I'd never gone to journalism school. Do you mean do you mean I didn't go to journalism school either, but do you did you do you mean like not like changing the quote, but no. like choosing the quote? Like, yeah, oh, like I could how use you this choose- one or I use this one. Well, oh, but I use this one. There is so much art and artifice involved in writing a story. And oh, sure. so for instance, like you can edit a quote. But it's like, how much can you edit it? Yeah, you got to be careful. And that's like, a careful. real gray area. And I think that's where I got a little bit. Like in my early 20s, I didn't have a ton of mentorship. I had wonderful writers at the Austin Chronicle, but they didn't have time to answer these questions for me. And, Plus, they know, also didn't know. They, if they didn't don't know. know. And and everyone kept ask, acting like, well, of course, you know, you don't do this. Like you never can like conflate characters, meaning like put no. together composite characters. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that. Like I'd never done that before. But I was like, oh, 
I didn't know you can't do that. So there was a lot of that that was going on. Anyway, I told a, I wrote a story. It was called To Tell the Truth um, that was about, you know, also I was a childhood fabulist. Like oh, I, oh, you saw my video yesterday. Yeah. So was I. Yeah. I told a story in seventh grade that I knew River Phoenix and he was going to call me and I actually recorded an entire <gasps> fake conversation with River Phoenix, putting the old fashioned phone up to a jam box and doing a fake conversation and then later played it for my friend. And she was like, I can't hear his voice. And I was like, oh, I can't believe it didn't pick up. I oh did my. the whole thing. That's like the story that I sent you yesterday about Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. I'll, I'll link it. It's a it's a it's a woman who got got taken for eight hundred thirteen thousand dollars because Leonardo DiCaprio was being held captive by Scientologists that she was going to save him. I mean, it's just. It's well, just I I could bananas. have used that cover up story to <laughs> with my seventh grade friend who believed me, but then I think she was on to me eventually because it was just like you did not. You did not uh, have a phone date with River Phoenix. But it's uh, like, but like we want to believe. Like that story at the time I felt was like a social good because I got to feel like I knew River Phoenix. She got this like contact hit of somebody else's celebrity. And like River Phoenix didn't give a shit. He didn't know any different. So it was just like this story feels good and I want the good feeling and, you know, eventually you realize that you don't do that because it erodes trust in you and yourself. Like, like basically that you should tell the truth because you need that as a stable foundation for when you tell things to people. Um, you have to say no to people. Otherwise, they won't believe your yes. So it's it's foundational. But 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 when I was younger, I was always pushing the envelope. But that's all I everybody. I think everybody that's watching this podcast remembers when they said that, you know, I said the Osmonds were my cousins or somebody else. I can't remember. Matt Welch told me some other story, some like famous sexy actress. He said that she was part of the family or something. It's like we all, you all, we all do this until we're about, I don't, maybe not all, but I think it's pretty common. Um, or at least for, you know, middle-class American children. I've always to, heard that smart children lie. Smart children okay. are the ones that tend to lie. Until you're about 10 or 11, I would say. And then, I mean, at least in my case, um, I, you know, I basically stopped doing that. I mean, you might like be silly or fabulous about something else. I remember like being in a bar in New York when I was in my early 20s and pretending I was from some like Slavic country and I could speak <gasps> the language. And they, they were like, wow, what is she, what language is she speaking? I mean, she's speaking drunk. But anyway, uh, you know. We used you to know. love to do that and use uh, a little yeah. British accents and go yeah, to the movies be and be like, two for Karate Kid, please. Yeah, that's different. But like, but, but, but being a grown up and doing this when you're, when you're doing this, I, I just think there are real consequences. Now, I, there's a second part, and I will read the second part to this um, Elizabeth Finch story, because apparently she had been married to a woman that had five children and had done, apparently she was stealing other people's stories. And that's exactly what grown-up fabulists do. You steal other people's stories and use them and metabolize them and put them into the world for your own yeah. gain or your own sunshine. And then when the people whose story it is find out, they're like, hi, that's actually my story and I'm not so, but of course, you know, and sometimes, sometimes it gets exposed and sometimes it doesn't. And in this case, by the case, way, this is what, did. this is what novelists do as well. But that's okay. Cause it's fiction. I mean, yeah. although, though, who's the bad art friend? 
Who's the bad art friend, which I actually just cited in, uh, was it in, oh, it was in something I think I wrote for uh, our site. Um, but anyway, I will, I, will, I will put that to piece by Bob Colker, who wrote the great um, um, true crime book, um, Lost Girls. Yeah. He wrote something called Who's the Bad Art Friend uh, that was, uh, I believe, in New, New York. New York Times Magazine, and Magazine. it was a big sensation um, last on, year. But it's, it's really, really, really good because he, first of all, Bob is just literally, I, you know, one of the best writers out there. Right? And, I, and he's a friend. I, he actually helped me get my book published. He's, he's a really great guy. But this article, if there's one link you read in our show notes, read this because you are going to be amazed at how you will start to like walk the circumference of this story and the prismatic view of it and who's the hero, who's the villain. It also takes place in my in my estimation in the the, the dirty fishbowl that that is the the world of fiction writing. It's it's kind of an airless kind of place. Sometimes I'm not saying the work is, but they the the whole you know, I don't know, any insular little world where people are, you know, academia or, or fiction, I don't know, it's kinda kinda icky. Sorry. Sorry, that 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 that, that wasn't a broad statement, was it? <laughs> That was a that was a Sarah Apple answer right there. You just um, you just walked a mile just, to go yeah. ten feet. <laughs> right. So, and we are bumping up on our time. So, um, Sarah Hepla, is there anything else you want to um add? What's what's going on for you this week? Um, anything? I like your hair. There? I like your oh, God. haircut. So I got a haircut yesterday because, as I said on the last episode, my hair is growing so fast apparently because I'm taking vitamins or something. Um, that it I like watching it grow. So I had a I had a cut yesterday and it's pretty good. Till she did one list little cut here. So I got a lot of bangs now, but it's all right. Plus it's super humid here. So my hair is like going to be like super big, which is fine. So, yeah. Um, it, is it Friday? It is Friday. God, and I'm, I'm driving to Monday. I'm so confused. I'm, I'm driving at dawn tomorrow down to Houston. So you ride at dawn. I'm, I ride at dawn. I got to go get my brakes done though today. I got to find a place to put Are you going to stop at the same Houston statue, the giant I am. Same Houston statue you t- that I showed you? You told you me to. You better fucking take I a am. selfie with that I'm goddamn giant. I'm doing it. I'm there is a, like I was driving from uh, outside Houston back to Dallas and it was nighttime. And I was just like, you know, what? there's like nothing on the road and it's <laughs> all lit up and it's gigantic <laughs> and you're just driving and there's suddenly an enormous bearded white man in on the side of the road. And you're like, what is happening? Yeah. I literally didn't even gonna- know about that damn statue. And then, of course, you know, if you just look up like who's the giant statue close to Huntsville, it's like, yeah, that's that's Sam Houston. Sam Houston. Uh, yeah, um, I will do that. So mo- are we talking again Monday? I think we're gonna. I'll, yeah, I will so, be at hotel room in Austin on Monday talking to you. Okay, this I, is interesting. So you're going to Tulsa, Houston, and Austin, but not I, Dallas. I know, I know. I got to get back. I got to be back in the city. That's by, fair by, enough by, because by on Tuesday, I will be flying to Fairfax, Virginia. Oh, that's right. Tell our listeners, Sarah Hepler, if they don't already know, because we're we have not a. Hey, everyone! Thank you so much for all the new listeners. I got up this morning, and there had been twenty five new ones while I slept. So I like that. I like all the little uh, little listeners creeping in when while we're sleeping. So tell the new listeners where you're going on uh, next Tuesday. I am going to the Depp Heard trial. I will see. In real life, the drama, the gripping drama that is the defamation trial of Johnny Depp 
versus his ex-wife, Amber Heard. Um, this is, I'm behind on my trial. I'm behind. I still have one day of testimony of hers that I need to listen to. And, you know, they've been off this week. So the cross-examination is starting next week. I need to be all up to date. And people keep giving me, you know, like I've got a couple podcast recommendations about like interesting like psychiatrists and psychologists that are talking about things that we talk about. So there's a lot of things for me to catch up on over the weekend before I venture off. And I'm going to try to see if I can get in touch with Nick Wallace, uh, the reporter, while he's, you, you know. You should. I, you know, we'll see. No, but I'm a fan. And, uh, you know, it, we're going to see what happens. Uh, like I've said before, the line, there's a there's a something posted outside that said, line for trial cannot start earlier than 1 a.m. <laughs> so that is how early you could go to bed at 5 30 girls get are waking up i mean you know i wake up at 4 30 every morning so i thought i was gonna have the advantage because it's just yeah, like yeah. oh no problem i'm yeah, you're a slacker i'm a middle-aged woman i'll, <laughs> I'll get they're not going to bed they're sleeping and camping in line well that yeah um well, I, I I just have some travel. I'll be back uh, in New York City next Friday, and uh, but I will see you on Monday, and we'll see what there is to talk about. See what your preparations are. I'll see what what stories have crossed. And guys, you know, I have to say we've got some pretty we've got some pretty great commenters. They're actually like commenting, which I love. So you know, if there's something that you're like, hey, you gals, we really like you to talk about X. You can you can send us that. Um, yeah, we'd love to get uh, suggestions on what to talk about. Um, we've already, you know, metabolized some of those and used them. Um, we should do a contest where, like, you make a pie for the best okay. commenter. I, we... I'm happy. See, the problem is, unless you're in New York City, I, a pie is not good. Pies don't mail well. But we actually, we should do something like, um, I don't know, for, I don't know, we'll do something. I will send you some baked goods because I kind of good at it so yeah um, you're really super good at it and i like signing you up for things that i don't have yeah. to participate there we go <laughs> okay all right okay sarah hepla it's been lovely spending time with you thank you listeners keep signing up tell your friends talk to you soon bye bye nancy rock tulsa for me i will when i met you i didn't know what to do i was tired i was hungry i fight Away. I ride home every day And I see you on the TV at night You can see that life's for us to talk about